Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman. Welcome to Compassion in Action. I'm so excited to bring you my interview with Stephanie Covington. She's a clinician who works in the criminal justice system, both in California and in the UK. In this conversation, we talk about what trauma does to our our brain, putting us in fight, flight, or freeze. Uh, we talk about adverse childhood experiences and how they they present both in the people that work in prison as well as the people who live in prison. We talk about alternatives, the Norway prison model, and what they're doing in San Diego. We talk about death row and how we need to integrate the people in death row into our society, that they're part of us. We also talk about moving our society towards a place of grace and dignity and how we can make this paradigm shift. So here, here's my conversation with Stephanie Covington. Thank you so much. Hi, my name is Fritzi Horseman. Welcome to Compassion in Action. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Covington. Dr. Covington, PhD, LCSW, is an internationally recognized clinician, author, lecturer, and organizational consultant. With over 35 years of experience, she is noted for her pioneering work in the design and implementation of gender-responsive and trauma-informed treatment services in public, private, and institutional settings. She is the author of numerous books, as well as 10 research-based manualized treatment curricula, including Beyond Trauma, A Healing Journey for Women, Helping Women Recover, A Program for Treating Addiction, and Voices, A Program for Girls. She is the co-author of Helping Men Recover. For the past 25 years, Dr. Covington has worked to help institutions and programs in the criminal justice system develop effective gender-responsive and trauma-informed services. Educated at Columbia University and the Union Institute, Dr. Covington is the co-director of the Institute for Relational Development and the Center for Gender and Justice located in La Jolla, California. So Stephanie Covington, welcome to Compassion in Action. Um, And I'm so honored to have you with me. I've been watching, following your work for years now and thank you for what you do for the men and women living in prison. Um, We need trauma-informed care. We need trauma information. We need trauma help. And so so what the things I want to ask for you are for the men and women who are living in prison, they'll be watching this. And can you explain what trauma does to the brain, body, and spirit? I think that's really important for them to know. Well, and I'm very happy to be here having this conversation with you, Fritzi. Um, Well, I think when we think about trauma, and I think I'm going to spend a couple minutes talking just about that in general, which is, you know, trauma is often an event that impacts someone. And like you said, it impacts every aspect of their lives. And when we think about trauma, some people think, well, trauma is like having a physical trauma, like being in an automobile accident and having harm to the body. But it can be psychological trauma. It can be physical sexual abuse. We talk and understand much more about historical trauma, what happens to groups of people who are oppressed. Um, We certainly can look more recently in this country at 400 years of history of racism and how that type of trauma impacts people. So it just, the impact is pervasive to the self, every aspect of the self. And our newer research tells us how it impacts the brain. So it's psychological and emotional, but it also has an impact on the brain. And that impacts how people think, how they feel, and how they behave. So we realize now, every service or everything that we really do with people or even our interactions, you and I, if we put that through the lens of trauma and think about that as sort of the backdrop that could be part of someone's history, then we realize we have to be really thoughtful how we interact with people, how we talk to them, what our behavior is like around them. And if we talk about the criminal justice system, where we're providing services and where we put people 
So it's, it's everything. In my world, it's everything. Yes, and for the people living in prison, it's everything. It's Absolutely. You know, if we look at the men and women who are incarcerated in this country, they have the highest levels of abuse and trauma in their lives. And then we put them in a system that was never, ever designed to work with people who have that history. So, and that's what this awareness is. We're, we're working towards shifting the whole paradigm. So Exactly. So when you're traumatized, um, you know, there's all these symptoms that I've, I've uncovered, which is like hypervigilance and sense hypersensitivity, you know, really, the body is really vulnerable. And what I've understood is that we need to feel safe is basically the first, first level, right? The first most important thing is a sense of safety. And think about what that means, trying to feel safe in a system that was not designed to keep you safe. It was designed, actually, our prisons were designed to keep you and I safe, people on the outside safe, not people who were living on the inside safe. It was designed for punishment and to keep those of us, the more privileged people, safe. So now we have to think about, I believe, you have to think about safety for people on the inside, both the staff and the people working there, and yet we have policies and practices in place that are just the opposite of creating safety. So we're talking about a huge, I mean, people talk about prison reform. I'm not sure that you can reform something that is essentially flawed in its foundation. I think we have to talk about prison transformation. We have to totally rethink how do we help and work with people who are struggling to live in community. What, if, if, I'm, if I'm a person that can't follow uh, the rules or the standards of my community, and you decide to take me out of my community, it would seem to me, rationally and logically, that then you'd put me in an environment that would help me to learn, learn, live, teach me how to live in community. That is not what we're doing. No, exactly. So basically what you're saying is rehabilitation is, is a mandate. It's actually to keep us safer. You know, 95, 95% of the men and women living in prison will be back in society. Absolutely. And how do we, we want them? them to, right. We want them to come out in better shape, but actually they come out in worse shape. So and a few of them come out in better shape. I shouldn't say everybody. Every now and then I work with someone who, when they're out and they can, they're managing and some of the things they learned in prison, but that is not the majority of people. The majority no. of people come out and are really struggling, just really struggling to find a job, finding a place to live, how to connect with family, how to find non-using, non-drug using friends. Um, how to deal with the stigma of having been in car. I mean, they come out with whatever problems they had going in are usually magnified by the time they come out. Right. So, so I want to get back to the brain. What happens to the brain? The amygdala. I want, I want this. Um, I want to explain to the men and women in prison what is happening when the when this part of the body shuts down because this is where people say we have we've we've made a moral choice. Like this is where our morality, right? This is where our morality lives, right? Okay, let me show you something pretty simple, okay? So this is gonna be a brain. This is, this is a brain. This is the brain stem, the back here, my head. Okay, that's this part. This is the part of my brain that feels. This is what we might call, this part of the brain in here, the, these are our, um, well, I'm gonna, I don't like the word primitive, but these are, these are the things that are sort of basic. And this is the thinking part of the brain, okay? I love this. So, okay, so something happens, what we might call a trigger, something, there's a sight, sound, smell, something that happens to us. And the thinking part of our brain goes like this. And what we're left with is the feeling part of our brain. 
and the primitive part of our brain. So when someone says, what happened to you? I flipped my lid. Well, here's your lid and you flipped it. This is what you have left. You don't have this now. You don't have the thinking part, the part that says, slow down, wait, stop, think through before you behave. You've lost it. And you have the anger and the rage and the fear. And the primitive part of my brain is based in survival. Okay. And so this is what happens with the brain. And so we can't, we're expecting, and this is part of the irony of the criminal justice system is really focused on cognitive interventions, working with this part of the brain, right? But if you're living like this in a prison, survival mode, the work that people are giving you up here isn't where they need to start. You have to start with the feeling part. This is incredible. This is, when I learned this, this changed my life because I had seven out of the 10 aces. Uh, and, and yeah. So, so I've been living my life in, a, in an, an anxious state my right. entire life. Right. And I didn't understand why I had road rage. I didn't understand why I would yell at my sister when she triggered me from just talking about my mother. I didn't understand where all this came from. And then I learned, I read Bessel van der Kolk's book and it was like, oh, I'm not a bad person. No, it all makes sense, right? Yes. You're carrying, you're carrying that history in your body, in your psyche, in your brain, and certain things are going to happen. These, what we, what we call threat cues, some people don't like the word triggers, it's a, it's a trauma response. And so your sister says something and it touches that part of you. Or you're going down the street and someone cuts you off. It's not the person cutting you off, it's what the memory of that you have of something previously that's stored in your psyche, in your brain, and in your body. And so your reaction is like this. You're, you get triggered, this part's gone, thinking's gone, and you're left down here with this part. And so that's why we work with people to first help them understand trauma, to be able to name it. Like you said, the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, so people can answer some 10 simple questions and understand where their risk is. What is their score? And you said seven. Four or more means you're at risk for a whole long list of things. So people need to understand that. Uh, one man that was in one of our programs said, I thought trauma was a hospital. I had no idea the things I experienced in my childhood were considered trauma. He didn't know it. He was an adult probably 35 years of age. So people need to know what it is. They need to know what typical responses are because now things, you know, the women particularly say, I just thought I was crazy. No, you're not crazy. It all makes sense. And when people learn what the typical responses are, it helps them understand themselves, their own feelings, their behaviors. This is part, well, part of the work we do, right? Yes. And one of the things that I found interesting is four or more ACEs, you're seven times more likely to be incarcerated in your lifetime. Yeah. So yeah, the people, people in the prison are the ones with the highest ACE scores. These are things that happened before age 18. So there's, and that also, if you have a higher ACE score, you're higher risk of being in the juvenile system. And we know the juvenile system is the pipeline into the adult system. And if it worked, juvenile system would be a barrier. It would be a, something that prohibits, it would be a prevention. It's, it's part of the flow. It's a pipeline. It's a pipeline. So because this part of the brain, this, this thing you're calling, this is what our criminal justice system is based on, is that we have the worst of the worst. We're calling the people the worst of a worst, but they don't even have access to this part of their brain when they're committing the crime, right? I mean, right. most people, I mean, we don't know what, but I, you know, when I go out of my mind, it's, it's like I'm drunk. It's like, I'm, you know, when I'm blackout drunk, I don't even understand what I'm doing. Exactly. And we're basing our justice system on the fact that 
people ha don't have access to this part of their brain. This is this is this part of the brain is when the insurance companies, our <laughs> our insurance rates go down, right? And right. so now, right. so this is I mean this is kind of what's perverse. What I feel is perverse, and why we have to start really addressing trauma, you know, like systemic trauma, which is both with the staff and the incarcerated. Yes. We also know the staff have high rates bases. So you've got this, this population of people who are playing different roles in an institution, right? Those who are incarcerated who don't want to be there, those who are there and getting a paycheck. The majority of them have four or more ACEs and they're in a system together, basically triggering each other. Oh my heavens. It's so trigger central. It is, it's trigger central. And you know, if you go back years and years ago, we didn't know this information, but you know, you know the history of our criminal justice system? I, I've, it's fascinating. Um, in, when, when the English came to the US, Quakers came in Pennsylvania and they set up a penitentiary and they wanted people to be alone in isolated cells so they could meditate and be still and think about their crime. And they found that that made them crazy. Hmm. So the system that was set up in Eastern Pennsylvania failed and we have built our entire system on a failed experiment. Wow. Wow. So it's time for a new experiment, right? I think it's time for, I think it's time for a new, I think, why can't we do something new? It's not, what we're doing is not working. Why not? And it's very costly, God knows. Um, why not take one prison, let's say in the state of California, run it completely differently and let's see what happens. Why, why can't we do that? Yes, let's do it for a month. And if it works, let's, because we don't have a six months. Give, give us six months. Give us six months to a year. You can't do anything in a month. You can't even get the door open. Um. I know, I'm impatient. I just, I yeah. want, this, you know, I want things to change now. So, right, or 10 years ago, either way. But, but we, I would love to run an experiment, set it up differently, and let's see what happens. Let's see what kind of changes we could make. It'd be great. So what would you, what are some of the um, changes you would put in place? Well, one of the first thing, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give the idea that there needs to be a perimeter fence, okay? I question that by the way, but I'll give you a perimeter fence. <laughs> um, you know, when, in Minnesota, when they built the women's prison in Minnesota about 25 years ago, they put it in a residential neighborhood with no perimeter fence. There you go. Um, over the course of 20 some years, they've had two or three women, what they call walk away. They don't even call them escapes. The women walked out the door and they got them two blocks later. Um, the women did not leave. Um, there are some Canadian prisons for women that do not have perimeter fences. But anyway, I'll give you a perimeter fence. Okay. Um, but I would train staff differently. I would hire them. There would be a really thorough screening process. I would set up small housing units that run um, with a sense of community. There would be community, you know, we would clump, people would live in houses with kitchens, bathrooms, and bedrooms. Um, we would set up a community inside a wall and we would learn how to live together. It sounds like a dorm. It sounds like a campus, a college campus, right? More like a college campus. Absolutely. Absolutely. Years ago, uh, I worked with the women's prison in Pennsylvania. One of them was in Northern Pennsylvania and it used to be a college campus and the Department of Corrections took it over and that became a women's prison. And there were some real advantages to that because of it originally was designed as a college campus. So the visual experience of it was far better than some of the prisons we built that are just horrific. Oh, horrific. I... The physical plant's awful. Have you been actually, in the place 
today that's one of the best models for what it could look like is the San Diego jail for women, Las Colinas. I've seen and photos. Yes. Beautiful. It looks like a community college campus. Even yeah. that environment makes a difference in how people feel and how they respond to their environment. Environment, in, in, environment really, um, environment impacts behavior. Yes. So we put, put people in environments and then we wonder why they behave poorly. Well, and you know, we're also talking about neighborhoods, like in our communities, the, the communities that you, the same, the same results. If you have like, exactly. it's, if it's a desert, a food desert and a spiritual desert, you know, where do you have to look forward to? So, you know, this is, this is, it's, per, it's a huge issues that are just pervasive across our country, Perva very pervasive, very but we'll pervasive. Just, We'll take the chunk of prison. We're, we're going to... We'll take that part first, right? We're onto that chunk. Yes. Yeah. Um, so what else would we do? Um, so the staff would be trained similar to what Norway's doing. They, they take two years to train their staff, right? Right. Can you imagine having that luxury? We would build it. We would create a very different environment, a different physical plan. Um, there would be a very much a... Uh, instead of a sense of how do you help motivate people. And we, there's a, two colleagues of mine have developed a really good program. It's called TIER. It's a um, trauma-informed reinforcement model. And we've used it more in juvenile justice. We've used it, I think, one or two adult women's facilities. We've used it with boys and girls in juvenile justice, women in a couple of prisons. And it totally changes the culture in terms of how it operates and how, what the expectations are, um, the interaction a person has with staff, what the plan is for the day, checking into the end of the day, how did you do, what needs to be changed. You know, it's just a very thoughtful way of trying to help people get a better sense of how to live their lives. And it's not based on punishment. It's well, based it, on positive reinforcement, which we know it makes a difference in human behavior. And a sense of who they really are, because when you're traumatized, you don't really know who you are. You're just, yeah. you're, you're living out your, your, your lizard brain. So when you're feeling safe, like I just started doing some somatic exercises and I'm learning that I am a kind and compassionate human being. I didn't know this. I didn't know this two years ago. So, I mean, but that's what's underneath the trauma. And, right. And we lay self is hidden. Definitely. People yes. don't know who they are. They don't, and they, well, they have a sense of who they are that is so limited. And it isn't, it isn't a whole person, you know, and we do that to people in the criminal justice system because of the names and labels we put on them. You're an inmate, you're a criminal, you know, these, these labels that have to do with one slice of their life and some certain particular behavior that they did, but that's not the whole of who they are. Yes, and why would we ever, you know, we, none of us wanna be limited and put in a box and said, you know, no. if, if I worked as a secretary that now I'm a secretary for the rest of my life. Or, and that's the only thing you are. That's it. You're not anything else. That, that is your label, that's your slot. And that's um, it and for the rest of my life. And even when I stop being a secretary, I'm labeled as a secretary. You're still a secretary. And you can't get a job because you're just a secretary, right? I mean, right. yeah. so. Yeah, it's just these lim we do it in the same thing in the addiction field. You know, you're an addict versus right. you have an addictive disorder. You're an addict. And wow. so all of a sudden, that's all you are. And while I think it's important to have names for th things that are part of ourselves like i said everybody's bigger than that more more complex than that there's a bigger self yes and, and addiction is just another again you're a traumatized person it's another way to keep your body safe right otherwise you're oh, killing yeah. yourself right it, or, it, can, it can be as for some people they start to use alcohol and drugs as a way to deal with the early childhood trauma 
it helps you forget, it helps you not to feel, you can numb yourself out. So what some people have chosen as a solution often becomes another problem. And we see those two very connected, the trauma and the substance use. And we want to shame people though for taking for actually medicating themselves. You know, we put them in this in this box again, another box of of right. being degenerate and and flawed instead of right. actually caring for yourself. So it's you know it's we have to, our society gets to reframe now because because once we all realize and it's 65 percent of the men and women in the united states have been traumatized have had at least one trauma right so oh, yeah oh absolutely and that affects the the develop, developing brain the gray matter is less um and our perspective of the world changes it's not right yeah and you talk you know you you talk to someone who's had several traumatic experiences as children and now they're adults they see the world differently than those who haven't had that experience. It's hard for them to see the world as safe. They may even unconsciously always be slightly apprehensive. You were talking about hypervigilance. And when you think about some of the symptoms, if you will, or things that happen with trauma, I always talk to people, you have to look at either end of the continuum. You know, everything's sort of on a continuum. People are either hypervigilant or they're totally numbed out. They can be either way. The bodies can be hypersensitive or the bodies can be totally numb. So you think about what's at either end. If we look at behavior, someone can be totally hyper or they can be almost catatonic and you find trauma underneath either end of this continuum. Yes. And There's not much metal for the trauma survivor. And these young, these young people that, that have experienced trauma in school, how are you supposed to learn? I mean, these special ed classes, they need just they just need safe rooms where they can focus because if they don't feel safe, how are they gonna learn? They're not going to learn. You know, San Francisco a few years ago, I've got a good story for you. The community in, in San Francisco that community with a lot of challenges. And uh, the school over the summer, our elementary school decided that they would become trauma-informed and they put comfort corners in each classroom, a beanbag chair, headphones for music, soft toy, you know, things. And then they had one room, a bigger room, small, but a separate room in the school. If the comfort corner didn't work, a teacher's aide could take a student into this um, soft room, right? So they tell the story of Bobby, who had been expelled from kindergarten five times. Okay. Wow. Behavior out of control, a lot of problems. Everyone's dreading Bobby coming back in the first grade. Bobby in the first grade is told about the cozy corner. He's had some time in the, in the comfort room. And he's really, he's doing well. And one afternoon, he'd been in school about six months with no problems in the first grade. He comes running into the comfort room where the teachers during recess usually hang out there because they like it better than the teacher's lounge. <laughs> he came running in and he said, I have to get a little teddy bear for Maria. And he said, oh, he said, she's having a meltdown on the playground and I've got to give her something. Bobby was learning empathy. This child never had another difficulty in school. He learned to self-manage. When he started to feel out of control in the classroom, they would remind him and he would go to this little corner where he could hold on to something soft, listen to music, and just be in this special space for a few minutes. He never had any therapy. He had no professional interventions, but if you're expelled from kindergarten five times, you know he's a boy who's not going to finish school. He, he isn't. Wow. And this was because the school changed the way they were doing their, their teaching, right? And they used the lens of trauma to think about what do our kids need? What, what's going to make a difference to these children? I mean, it breaks my heart just thinking of 
of him and all the boys and girls that are that are getting they're basically being criminalized as children for their behavior behavior right. that from being traumatized from being in families and situations that are just i mean that's what we're doing and right. and we're labeled these labeling these people as bad and i i think of the men and women on death row which is um from the limited amount of testing that i've done all the the, the scores are 10 mm -hmm. and um the stories that i've heard are you know one man came home to his father and his brains he had blown his brains out on the child's bed so the child had to i mean the crime this man was committed committed is unconscionable but what that child went through was unconscionable he had nothing else to understand life so and then we're killing them we put them on death row and then the state kills them when you know perhaps they shouldn't they don't belong in our society but they belong to us right they belong yeah the, i haven't i haven't had much experience with the men um the women i have um we have 26 women um by the way cd sarah doesn't like me to call it death row they changed the name to condemned women now is that better i'm not going to go there so i just call them the women on the row <laughs> the row women but there's 26 of them some of them have been there over 25 years um and we were able to bring healing trauma one of the trauma interventions to the women on the row and then i went to their graduation mm. and we had the most touching graduation um, we had it outside um, the woman who's the program coordinator brought in the tape recorder and played pomp and circumstance oh. the women got gown we have gowns and caps and then the women we had a graduation ceremony and some of the women wrote a poem several women got up and sang amazing grace it was exactly exactly and i hadn't realized until someone asked and i said yes that they don't give programming to people on the row because they figure well they're not getting out so why use up our resources yeah and so bother? now why bother and so i was so touched to be there and just so pleased to be able to provide something but again the histories of the women are pretty horrific. And the things they've done are horrific. I mean, like yes. you, the story you told me, I'm not, I am not uh, excusing anybody's crime. No. But I think we could do better with people who've committed things in the community that are awful. We don't need to do something awful in response. Exactly. I mean, when we activate our compassionate souls, mm -hmm. they'll see that, you know, they don't belong in our society directly, but they can be part of us, you know, and they don't yes. have to, we don't have to. And they are them. part of us. That's the other thing. Exactly. I mean, I mean, we're all interconnected. They are part of us. Exactly. And when we extend our kindness to them, they can transform. They can, they can give back to us and, and, and we can have a complete circle instead of, you know, this, yeah this kind of arbitrary system of domination that really doesn't work for the staff or for the incarcerated. Doesn't I mean, work for anybody. Yeah, we're talking about PTSD in a, you know, recreated over and over again and, and, and dehumanizing just, right. and, but it, it dehumanizes the staff, that's the thing. They don't understand that, they think that this is business as usual, but when you dehumanize someone, you dehumanize yourself, just like in child abuse. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. it hurts me more than it's going to hurt you. Well, it actually does. That and, does hurt you. Absolutely. And so actually, the criminal justice system in the prisons is set up to hurt everyone that walks in that, that building. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, I, I always, you know, when doing trainings and training with the staff, I always 
talk to them about the environment that they work in and why self-care is so important because the environment is very difficult for staff to go. I mean, I go in, you know, periodically, but to go in every day and work hour after hour, very challenging. I think very challenging. And so often the staff have to shut down and become numb just to enable to go and do their jobs. Yeah. All the systems of uh, symptoms of trauma are reflected in them and they're, right. you know, they're just as, as unavailable to their families and to their, their communities as right. the men and women in prison. So right. what is, the, what are, what is, the, what are we doing, you know, to it and for what I don't, it's not making much sense anymore. No, it's, it's an old system that has run its course. Yes. It isn't, it doesn't, I don't know what if it ever worked, but it's very clear it's not working now. And we, and like you brought up Norway, I mean, there are other places in the world where they're doing things in very creative ways in, with new thinking. And they're not getting higher crime rates. It's not destroying their communities. It's actually better. And I remember there was an interview of the man who was um, in charge. I don't remember if Norway uses the word wardens, but, um, and they were talking about the environment, particularly in that men's prison, that particular one. And um, he said, well, we know for sure that this environment's better for the staff. We think it's better for the, for the men who are incarcerated, but we absolutely know it's better for the staff. And doesn't that mean there's safety for the staff? Doesn't a trauma-informed prison yes. bring safety and uh, safety, feeling safe, but also the incidences and aren't as much as much right no right yeah in fact um a number of years ago one of the women's prisons in massachusetts decided that they were the warden became very interested in this concept of trauma informed so she decided where she would start would be in the mental health unit and what she did is they brought in some of the very much like the work that we do where we use people who've had long sentences and train them to be facilitators she brought in women who had quite a bit of time in the facility and trained them in a peer model around trauma-informed and brought them in to the mental health unit to provide extra services and changed how the mental health unit ran and ran it through the lens of trauma. And during this period of the first year that she did this, they kept track of depression, anxiety, uh, uh, staff, um, mm. I don't like the word inmate, staff, resident, conflict, uh, conflict between the residents, and suicides, everything went down dramatically in one year, and they didn't hire one professional. They brought in women who were living in the prison and trained them how to be responsive to the other women who were in a crisis, and it changed all of those things that prisons don't want to have. They don't want to have crisis issues. They don't want to have incidents of violence, but it came down because of that. Incredible, incredible. But we, we know that this has value. Well, yes, and now it's imperative. Now it's like, now that we know better, we must do better, you know? Exactly. We must, everyone, I believe, everyone listening to this, please take the ACE test so that you can understand what, what kind of questions are on the, on the ACE test. Mm -hmm. um, but so from entry until release, how would a trauma-informed prison look like? What would, okay. I mean, when you walk in, you're strip searched. That's triggering, right? I mean, so. You would do it differently, okay? For example, if you feel you need to strip search people for safety, one of the things you say to them is, this is our protocol and this is why we're doing it and this is how it's going to happen. And you would do it with a certain tone of voice with also a certain level of privacy. In some of our facilities, they're strip searching women in groups of 15 with other officers watching. God. So, I mean, I mean there's such a long way to go between what's happening and what it needs to be. So from the beginning, um, in England now, where I've done lots of work, they have a first, what's called the first night section of the prison. The women come in, and for the first night, they're not put into the main part of the prison. 
They're put in a separate room that's really not bad. It looks like an inexpensive hotel room. And that's where they are for the first night to get settled. They've taken everything off the walls. All they realize, well, their whole process, we're trying to get them trauma-informed um, is over a period of time. And they realize that everything on the walls were warnings. Don't do this, don't do that. If this happens, do this. They realize that's what happens when you come in are all the warnings. They took all that down. And they put things on the walls that actually were calming. So the really simple things can be done right from the beginning. And I think that what, what, we th what I think is there are basically sort of three levels to the trauma work. There's, we were talking about education, so people know what trauma is. Getting your ACE score so you know, gee, I've been impacted. Understanding what typical symptoms are, responses, I guess I'm not crazy. And then learning coping skills. What are the calming things I can do for myself? What are the grounding things I can do? How can I learn to manage some of this? And then you do that in an environment that is safe, that is not hostile, that is not abusive. There's consistency, which does not exist in prison settings. There's consistency, predictability, you know what is expected, and people are helping you learn how to follow whatever the rules are that have to make sense. Not foolish crap, but real, for, for, there's a reason we don't beat each other up. Right. Um, and in the process of that, you begin planning for someone to return to the community from the first week they walk in. So that when I leave, I have a skill set, I have someone who's gonna follow me into the community, help me get housing, Help me stay connected to my kids, my family. If that's not possible, how are you going to connect me to some other sense of community when I leave so I'm not isolated? So all of these things are doable. Yes. All of these things are doable. And restore voting rights. Restore the ability oh, to, yes. to, to get a job. Restore the yes. ability to be a, a contributing member of society, which is Absolutely. all anybody wants. That's all we want is to feel right. like a sense of belonging. Right, have a sense of meaning in our lives. Yes. You know, we've had um, quite a few women, but there are three that I particularly know that uh, they were facilitators, peer facilitators in one of the women's prisons in California. And um, when they got ready to leave, um, I contacted um, a colleague of mine who I actually don't know her face to face, but we've been on the phone a lot because they use some of my materials and she's talking about how difficult it is to get good trained staff. And I called her and I said, are you still looking for staff? She said, always. I said, I have three really good trained facilitators. She said, really? I said, would you interview them? She said, of course. So I would go through this whole thing. I said, oh, by the way, <laughs> they've just been released from prison. Yes. She was quiet for a minute. She said, okay. She said, you know, I can't have them work with women with any justice involvement because that's the rule, but I could have them work in my community-based program. I said, yes. Within about four or five months, she called me and she said, they are the three best employees I have ever had. She said, they're skilled facilitators. They want their jobs. Yeah. Um, and she said, they're just really, really good. And the women are making a living wage. And it's giving meaning to their lives because they're taking what they learned by facilitating. We never thought quite, Fritzi, I never thought that by training the men and women to be peer, peer facilitators, it could be a job skill getting out. It didn't dawn on me. And for many of them, they'd been in so long, I actually thought most of them would never get out. But we've had quite a few particularly the women, be released, even though they were, um, were told, you know, life sentence, no opportunity for parole. Um, but so people can, they need meaning in their lives. We all need to be able to feel like what we do matters, that I matter. Yes, the men I work with at Kern Valley State Prison, all they want is to give back. That's it. Yeah. Like, how can we impact the youth? Let can let us talk right. to the youth. Let us, and right. they have, I believe they, the incarcerated 
our incarcerated family has the tools to heal our, our communities. And yes. yet we're holding that back. Like just in that example that you gave us. Yeah. Because normally those women with the same skill set would go out and work at McDonald's. Yeah. That would be what would be open to them. And yeah. instead. Yes, they're changing lives and changing right. the world. Exactly. Exactly. They're true contributors. And you know, the thing about being incarcerated is formerly incarcerated people are so grateful. They're so grateful to have a job. They're there right. and to be out and to be, you know, functioning in society. All the things that we take for granted, the things that we for, even forget to think about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, so these are things we get to think of as a society now, what we're, you know, how we can move forward into a, a place of grace to use. And there's another great program called the place of grace, which um, Karen McDonald has, has created. So we, we start with being, so just being um, strip searched is a dehumanizing thing. But the, what you propose is that give them privacy and maybe same sex strip searches. Right. So that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. So there's, yeah. And yeah, this isn't, you know, we're no longer like in some weird slave movie, you know, no. let's bring dignity to at every point of the way, because I think that's a great word. Dignity. Yes. Yeah. Dignity. Because that's what, that's what we, that's who that's we are. Who's taken away. And that's what's taken away. There's the no, yeah, yeah, no, no sense. From the second you walk in, you know, basically you're raped in a sense. It's a, it's the first crime committed to you. You know, it's like, we're going to, we're going to commit all these crimes. We're going to rape you. We're going to abuse you. We're going to demean you, you know, emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, right? The first three on the ACE test, it happens when you walk into prison. So... Yeah. So, and then, and then as you're, it's like, you've, um, you've created a, a, a picture for us where um, the chances of people needing to be in prison for a long period of time kind of shorten and they don't have oh. to be. Yeah. I, you know, I've been doing this a long, long time. And what I do, one of the things I do is I always ask wardens, what percentage of the men or women here in this facility do you think could be in the community? And do you know what the number usually is? No. 75% could be out of here. And I think there is a percentage that probably need to be in prison because we haven't learned yet how to help them. Yes. And they're really scary. <laughs> and they usually are scary to themselves. Um, yeah. But the vast majority do not need to be there. They don't need to be. If we had programming in the community, they could be out. Isn't that incredible? So, so we're spending billions of dollars, like billions, billions of dollars billions. to abuse people when we could spend probably half of that to improve, to help, to, help, to bring joy, to bring more connection with their families. Mm -hmm. I mean, what a what a great conversation we're having. What, a, what an opportunity for the world to see what's really possible. And I think um, a lot of things are possible. Yeah. If there's the will to do it. I mean, that's, there has, and literally, I mean, it's a political issue. There has to be political will to make change in the system. It's become very politicized. Yes. And, and, you know, I mean, I keep hearing this metaphor. It's going to take a long time to turn the boat around. And um, I don't know why people have decided it's going to take a long time when, you know, we could just get together, you know, we could get a consensus and decide we're trauma informed all of a sudden. We're trauma informed. Everyone mm -hmm. in the staff needs to know what, a, what trauma does to the brain, body and spirit. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I'm, I, like I said, I'm impatient because I believe there are 2.3 million people are being abused under my the money I gave to the government mm -hmm. and it's unnecessary, right? So I think it's unnecessary. Yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, 
like I said, there, ha there has to be the will to do it. And any huge system, change can't happen fast. I mean, it just, you know, when I go in and work in a system and I don't care if the system has a thousand employees or 50,000 employees, it's a three to five year process to change a system. And that's with people moving all in the same direction. It should, because, well, think about how, how, let's make it smaller. Let's talk about change in a family. Let's say a family has been operating in a certain way for 10 or 15 years. And now you can see that the way that family operates isn't useful to anybody, the adults or the children. And you want to change, and that family's interested in changing. So how fast does change happen in that family? Ah, oh, it's, it, it's not fast, even if everybody wants it. Undoing something is much harder than doing it right from the beginning. Okay. That's why I said, it'd be great to have a prison that started off differently because it's easier to start off right than to take what you've got and try to fix it. I hear you. I hear you. Because it's those things deeply ingrained. You know, all of us are, it's human nature in a way. We're not, we're not good at rapid change. I, I'm going to, I'm going to, push back on that because okay i i just i want us to really consider what we can do expediently because we've got we've got men i mean i get letters from men from kern valley state prison just talking about just day-to-day -day abuse and day-to-day dehumanization and just not letting the spirit at least just you know stop with the punitive practices let's mm -hmm. do no harm you know let's right. bring in the hippocratic oath to prisons, do no harm, at least let's not abuse. Let's start there, right. policymakers. Let's just take abuse off the table. Mm -hmm. And and then we'll bring in trauma-informed, and then we'll bring in more education. And what I'm really lobbying for right now are tablets for everyone in prison so we they can connect with their families and get more programs, uh, right. especially in COVID. So, um, so wow, um, anything else? I hope, and, and you know, I hope you get that. I hope you do get more tablets in the prison. Yes. Question is, you know, I would support you, and I also know at this particular period of time, because of the budget cuts, I don't know what California is planning to spend. They've cut funding for all kinds of things. Well, in COVID, we're probably looking at a year from now. So all these, you know. Guess what? All there's a lot of money for programs floating around that they have in their budget. Let's just get them tablets. I'll do programs for free for a while. I mean, let's rethink it. Let's just, you know, let's think about it now and shift. Same with the rest. There's 49 other states that are also. Um, oh, everybody's struggling with COVID and trying to figure out. I'm. I don't think that prisons are going to be open anytime soon. There's no, no indication of that. None. And the most important thing are the men and women connecting with their families. That, yes. that is got to stay connected. It's just the most important thing. So we've got to, you know, and we cannot charge them by the minute. Right. Like the phone call, the price of a phone call is, I mean, all of that is ridiculous. And they're waiting in line for hours just, just so they can connect. And, you know, it's just, let's make it convenient. You know, it's, Right. Yeah. So it's not rocket science. It's not rocket science. No. And you know, okay, let's get Facebook, Google, um, Yahoo, and every other tech company to chip in. Let's get some mm -hmm. tablets going. And then, you know, the men and women can pay them back, you know, in Facebook likes if they want, whatever, however, we'll figure it out. But, you know, we need to, we need, it's all hands on deck as I'm, as I'm seeing, we got to undo what we've done. It's urgent. It isn't, it isn't like, oh. It's become more urgent because it was the, everything being locked down. I mean, that is, a that is a recipe for disaster. Exactly. And the people ready to be released, let's just let them, come, let them go now. Why do we, why are we extending this, you know, in perpetuity? It's, 
Um, so any other, any other ideas on a trauma-informed prison, a prison that we can all be proud of and take the word prison out of it, somehow a healing go. center we can be proud of, right? Well, and healing centers is really the terminology. You know, years ago in Scotland, they decided that they were gonna rebuild the women's prison and the chore was given to two women administrators in the prison system. And they started thinking about it and then they met with the architect and uh, they described what they wanted in terms of the physical plant. And they described it and uh, the architect it had to do with color and light and plants. And the architect looked at him and them and said, you don't want a prison, you want a healing center. They said, that's exactly what we want. And the plans were spectacular, beautiful. Now they didn't build it. The reason being that the next person that came in to run this prison system in Scotland looked at it and said, we don't want to put women in large institutions. We want small places closer to community. We don't want one big institution. Oh. So they never built that, but the pictures and the plans are wonderful. Scotland is, will be the first country to become a trauma-informed country. They have made a commitment as a country that they want to become a trauma-informed country. I didn't know this. I'm thrilled. I'm going to write a letter to Scotland and thank them. Oh, my God. What you know, a, what a, know. and in this country, you know, Philadelphia is one of the cities that's working to become a trauma informed city, but for a country to take that on, that's their goal. But they did not build that women's prison. Yes, because they realized mothers needed to be near their babies and uh, people need to be close to home. They need to be in smaller facilities if they need to be in a facility. And, you know, so they just didn't, but but the plans were like phenomenal. But I loved it. The architect said, you don't want a prison, you want a healing center. Yes, that's exactly what we need. We need healing centers. Oh, thank you so much, Stephanie. This is, I hope we can have more conversations because I really think- Absolutely. I really think you've got the, you've got the goods for us. We need your goods. And thank you for all the work you're doing in all the prisons. Well, thank you. And, and thank uh, you for inviting me to the conversation. We can have another. We will talk more. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you. And um, wow, keep doing this great work. And, and um, oh, um, just are there any exercises? I just thought of this. Maybe anything the men and women in prison can do to soothe themselves. Is there, is there something they can do to, you know, start the process of starting to feel safer. Yeah, I mean, there are really a lot of things. One of the things we've brought into the prisons to the people that have been in our programs are these stress reduction packets that are all filled with self-soothing exercises and so forth. But I'll give you one just as, as we're closing. It's one we teach a lot. It's called the five senses activity. And the five senses activity is you just take a couple of deep breaths and you just look around the space you're in and you name to yourself five things you can see. You just name to yourself five things you can see. And then name to yourself four things you can touch. And then three things you can hear. Two things you can smell. and one thing you can taste. And the whole idea of this is just getting into the moment. It's just being still and getting right into this present moment. And when we each can stay in the present moment, we always feel safer. And basically the present moment is all we have anyway, is this, this moment. So that's one of the exercises we teach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Fritzy. Thank you for listening to our podcast with Stephanie Covington on compassion and action. Please visit our website at compassionprisonproject.org and find ways to get involved, volunteer, donate, 
And also on the website, you'll find Step Inside the Circle and Honor Yard, the two films we've made this year about childhood trauma behind bars. And as usual, please like, share, and subscribe to this podcast, and be sure to comment about how much you love this podcast. Until next time, this is Fritzi Horseman, and thank you again for listening.